bites. It bites hard. It bites. In three, two. Good evening. From New York City, I'm Dan Rydell, alongside Casey McCall. Those stories, plus a Ryder Cup preview and a trip to the Big Sombrero. We'll run down how the top draft picks are faring in the big time, and we'll run up the flag at Greensboro. All that coming up after this. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so stick around. We're out. I'm Adam Amin, alongside Steve Cimino. Those stories plus dives into episode 10, maybe the signature episode of the entire series of Sports Night. It is entitled Shoe Money Tonight. This has been a long time coming, it feels like, and I'm very excited to finally get into it. Cannot wait. This has been built up by us, I feel like, for a while now, and it's the one where every episode that we said, this might replace it as the the go-to, I don't think it's been replaced after getting through it today. I had watched this episode in a long time, just all the way through, and obviously we we know there are a lot of great uh, one-liners. There are there, there's a tremendous speech at the end of it, but I forgot how good this episode is in its tightness, in its sharpness, in its wit, in its monologue delivery. It's the the acting's really good. It's all great. This is, I think that I'm with you on this. I think this is the defining episode of this series. And I think it's the sharpest one so far. It is one of my favorite episodes of any television series ever. It is such a good standalone episode where all the characters are developed enough to stand on their own without much introduction. Like you could watch this having never seen it before and be like, I yes. like these people. But I think now this is the first time I've been doing like a rewatch of the series in a very long time. And now getting into it after watching nine episodes, it's even better because of everything that's been been happening so far so it, it makes it that much better to see it with everything that you have you know been building on but it's also so good even on its own this would be the episode i would press play on just to be like i haven't watched sports night in a while let's check this one out and this would be the one i'd show to other people i oh, think for sure definitely. undoubtedly definitely episode 10 of season one shoe money tonight originally aired december 8th 1998 written by aaron sorkin directed by denny gordon we have no tommy shalami this week and i think you could tell actually Denny Gordon, I did a little a little research. She is a pretty accomplished film and TV director. Did you do any looking into her on your own side of things? I did see Joe Dirt on her resume. Oh, yeah. so I was a little thrown off by it, but there's some really good television shows that she's been a she's, director. She's done some Party of Five, obviously Sports Night, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Grounded for Life, which is a, a cult classic. I love that show to death. Uh, White Collar, Burn Notice, Hell on Wheels. Uh, and then, yes, films. She's only done three. There was Joe Dirt and then the, of course, world-famous Olsen Twins movie, New York Minute, and <laughs> What a Girl Wants, which I think might be the movie where Amanda Bynes pretends to be a boy? Or I might be getting uh, that wrong. <laughs> well, it is, it's, yeah, it's definitely the Amanda Bynes movie, and I always got it mixed up with What Women Want. Which is the, oh, Mel, the Mel, Brook, movie Mel, where he, Mel Brooks? I almost said. Wow. <laughs> How dare you sully the name of Mel Brooks <laughs> with Gibson's "What Women Want"? But yeah, I, I used to get those confused. This is uh, somebody who's got some serious directorial experience, and there are a lot of interesting shots in this. Oh yeah, episode. And I don't know about you, but did it almost feel like it was filtered a little bit, especially in the poker scenes? Yes. Like it almost looked like there was some kind of film or filter on what we were looking at in some of these scenes. I, I made a couple notes about things looking much different, and we'll get to them each as they come, I'm sure, but I noticed there were a lot more tight 
close-ups on people, a lot more shot reverse shot, right? So it was like looking at this person over someone's shoulder and then the other side of the conversation over that person's shoulder. And you could just it's, – it's, it was a very cinematic-looking episode, a lot of different shots, including a couple that I think are, are awesome, which we'll get to as, as they come. But she knows what she's doing. She has a DAG award for an episode of Tracy Takes On, the, the Tracy Ullman show, and she's a graduate of the Yale School of Drama. So the synopsis for this episode from our 10th anniversary DVD booklet, when Dan and Casey have to cover the 2 a.m. West Coast update, the whole gang takes the opportunity to start an all-night game of poker. But Jeremy is learning that love is the biggest gamble of them all. Oh, Holy cow, the schmaltz man. Puns. Puns galore. We, we talk about puns in this episode, and somebody should edit that <laughs> right down and get the puns out of there. That one is is weak. I'm not happy about that one at all, but it, it pained me to read that last line out loud. <laughs> so this is another one of those rare instances where we have Master Control added again, kind of uh, telling the show what route they'll be on. We got the nighttime skyline, and Dan and Casey are walking their way up to the desk. So we get a little walk and talk. Dan, wearing jeans, which is always good to see. <laughs> always get looking for him in jeans or basketball shorts. There's and, a comfort level there with jeans. I think we see Dan wearing them. Oh, yeah. It just goes to show that he's a laid back kind of dude and he's very focused and he's got a lot of those kind of we've mentioned it before where he is tackling something and is still very nonchalant about it all and he's got a few moments there so it's just all dan but he's all fired up they're talking about blackjack buying the insurance you don't need to understand the insurance just buy it and dan feels like he is in the zone and i like when dan's in the zone he just feels good he's clicking everything is perfect in the zone there's no zone there's a zone there really is there is a very powerful zone my friend uh, we find out that they're getting ready to head to Atlantic City after the show, and they're just in a, in a really good mood as it goes. How do you feel about Blackjack? Are you a gambler, first of all? I'm not a huge gambler, but the, the handful of times I've gone to a casino, I've only pretty much played Blackjack. I don't know really how to play anything else. Blackjack's the only game I feel comfortable with that I understand. Typically, if you're at a good table, quote-unquote, everybody's in a relatively good mood, and they're relatively easygoing, and that's all I really want. When I sit down at a table just to play that. So that's all I ask for is don't be let, let's not have a jerk at the table. Let's not have anybody who's going to be mean at the table. And let's t- try to have a good time and get out of there with some money in our pocket. See, my my experience with blackjack is almost the polar opposite where I don't, I'm not, I don't really know what I'm doing. Necess- I mean, I understand the game, but I'm not that good at it. And I, the reason I don't really like playing blackjack is because what you do affects the other people, you know? So other players getting angry if you hit when you shouldn't hit or if you catch a card that they're mad that they should have got because you you did hit when you shouldn't have hit. I've had bad experiences with with angry old women, particularly at uh, (laughs) casinos playing blackjack. And and that's the one thing like I want to be if I'm going to play, I want to be at a table that's like that's not going to worry about those things. And it's and it's so hard to get like I've gone to a casino in Milwaukee and in the middle of the afternoon just to like burn some time. And I've been at a Vegas casino late at night when there are some real angry gamblers there and I've been at a casino like in the middle of Indiana where everybody's just like, Hey, I'm in a good mood and I'm happy to be here and let's not, let's not uh, kill ourselves over, you know, a few bucks. The angry old woman was in Windsor, Canada when I was uh, 19 years old. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> well, so was that one of, so that, that must've been one of your first experiences. Going I think on. it was the, it was the very first time at a casino, obviously as Canadian gambling rules are different. So a little trip up there to play, at 19 was fun but also very scary although a couple of other guys got along with they called her grandma got along with her very well and she gave them (laughs) comp tickets to uh the buffet so 
She must have well, had a sweet she, side. I just she, didn't see. I was gonna. I was gonna say she had. She must have some power if she's just handing out buffet tickets. Oh, she's. She was like a regular, I guess. But oof. Wow. so Dan and Casey fired up, ready to play some blackjack. Well, we go to the control room and we get right into already one of our main storylines. Natalie and Jeremy, officially a couple now, officially having their first fight because. Jeremy decided to play tennis with his friends instead of going to the movies with Natalie. It was the first day off they had together in a couple of weeks, but he had other plans. Don't know whose side I'm going to take on this one yet. As we get more details, it comes out. Uh, But they're having their first fight, which is both funny and a little bit realistic, as they're both kind of snarky but nice to each other at the same time. And it's that awkward, like, well, hey, we haven't had a disagreement like this before going on. I do feel like this is the first fight. This is like the first real fight. What have we actually seen between these two that has shown any indication that it's uh, anything other than paradise right now for that for, for both of them? And even like Jeremy, I, I know it was kind of a, a jab at Natalie and he's trying to like defend himself because of his snark. But when he said, you know, when she tells him, you know, all we do is pretty much go home, have sex, watch TV, wake up, go to work. What kind of relationship is that? And Jeremy says, well, it's working out great for me. <laughs> and 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 you could just kind of tell like he's not used to this he's right. not used to like you would never say something like that in a in what would be i, I guess a, a tiff with your wife you would probably never say anything like that you might you might say something like that if you're pushed to the edge of the of the of this fight but i can't imagine you just saying something in the flow of conversation of the fight between you and your wife because you know better than to say something dumb like that that you know is clearly going to upset her. Or am I giving you far too much credit? <laughs> I uh, Sometimes I, I speak before thinking, but who doesn't really? But Jeremy, I think, is is learning to fight, as we'll see later with his conversation with Dan, where he's just kind of like, he's getting like, well, Jeremy's perspective is, I'm right. Like, there's, I'm not wrong in this argument. Instead of kind of understanding the other side, he's just like, I'm, I'm right, you are wrong, so I'm sticking to that. And he's he's kind of getting that it doesn't necessarily matter all the time in uh, in the relationship arguments. You know, I'd be I'd be curious about that with you. Is it, it do you have you developed that? Has that evolved with you? Like instead of trying to be right, you're trying to find compromise. You're, instead of knowing that you're right, you're looking for the middle ground. Like how has that developed for you? I think that is absolutely what ends up happening as you get into the stage. Was you, you feel right? Everyone feels right, right? Like you're not gonna get into an argument if you don't think that you are the correct side of that argument but you do have to find that compromise it becomes the issue where it's it's do you really want to just prolong this and keep going instead of just being all right look we're both we both have our uh our good points and our bad points and we need to be able to put this this baby to bed it's one of those situations otherwise you end up with that old like uh catskills comedian joke where it's like we we made a deal never to go to bed angry we haven't been to sleep in 12 years like all that (laughs) like so you got to find that compromise that was that might have been a Henny Youngman line. We've had a Henny, we have a Henny Youngman reference in this episode. That is, and a I feel fine like that point. might be that might be a really good Henny Youngman line. <laughs> so we find out as Isaac comes in and pulls Dana out of the control room that Paul and Peter, who are the anchors for the two a.m. West Coast Update show, are stuck in Pittsburgh. They're stuck on the tarmac because it is snowing, and so Dan and Casey are going to have to stay on and anchor the two a.m. show, which means. No Atlantic City. We get uh, also a little note, which will be just recurring joke lines for Dana, that Isaac is shrinking. He's been measured for a new suit, and he's found out that he's gotten smaller. Dana's got a really funny, where? (laughs) All all of Dana's response and retorts to any time she sees Isaac the rest of this episode are just, just fantastic. She just ribs him enough, and she knows exactly how to push his buttons which is great and he keeps threatening to fire her which is also pretty great yeah absolutely 
uh, Isaac is delegating to Dana to go tell the guys. Dana then delegates to Natalie to go tell the guys, and she does. But first, we go back to the desk, and we see that... Dan keeps saying, I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone, I'll prove it to you. And they get a deck of cards and continue to cut. And he keeps outdrawing him, including pulling an ace after the queen. And we get one of my favorite things, as you know, another Dan and Casey high five, <laughs> which is pretty you love. You do love the Dan and Casey high five. This one is much more natural. It's not the sideways one. It's like a straight up high five. And it's great. And they just have a bunch of uh, excitement building until... In comes Natalie with the bad news. There's no bad news tonight, Natalie. When the show comes down, Danny and I are hopping in a limo, heading down to the Garden State Parkway, and getting off the exit clearly marked the zone. That's great, Casey, but all those things you just said, yeah. not going to happen. Another little uh, fact there. I think this is the first time that we see Allison, the makeup woman, ever. And she's kind of touching them up when Natalie tells the bad news. She doesn't really have a lot to do in this show, but once in a while, Casey will say something to Allison, which I, I find endearing for him yeah she becomes a quick foil for uh, a one or two line run for uh, for casey when when alice is around uh, around the desk which I, th- I think is interesting actually i rarely see and i've been around studio shows relatively often and i rarely see the makeup person come onto the set usually you're like in the green room or in the dressing room they do your makeup and then you don't really see them unless, and if you have to go get something done for whatever reason which typically doesn't have to happen you go back to the green room or the makeup room and they'll do that for you there. So I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Another little nitpicky thing for me, as they go into the preview of that night's episode, it's December, we know it's snowing, and they say a Ryder Cup preview. The Ryder Cup always happens in September or October. So are they previewing for the next year or is this just, well, we need some kind of sporting event, Ah, pick the Ryder Cup and throw it in there? Yeah, I, 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 and it's, I think it's rarely in October, so it's almost always in September. Once in a while, you'll get it in October, I think like we did this year. And... I mean, that, yeah, that that is a bit of uh, an, an anachronism right there, right? Okay. I, I feel like we we're, we're trying to point these out. We're we're clearly in December at this point, or at least getting you know we're past Thanksgiving, so you'd assume we're in December at this point. We're in between Christmas and Thanksgiving, so I was a little disappointed by that. Yeah, I, I feel like they could have done better. A little heartbreaking. I can give, about- give, me a ho- give me a hockey preview. Give me an, uh, give me or give me an NHL rundown or or anything else. That, that is going on at this time. Unless there, this is some kind of monumental Ryder Cup that needs 10 months of previewing. <laughs> like, I, I, they're getting really jazzed up for the turn of the century Ryder Cup, I guess. Fun fact, and without giving away too much biographical information, Medina Country Club hosted the Ryder Cup a few years ago. Probably, I don't know, what, four or five years ago. Yeah. And where I work is across the street. And we got ourselves a nice week off during the Ryder Cup because they were using our facilities for oh, wow. all sorts of stuff for... For the athletes and the caddies and the, the television coverage and all that good stuff. So thank you, Ryder Cup, for giving me a respite from work once in a while. Yeah, that's awesome. We go to a commercial break and come back with Sally, who is excellent, excellent character. Although this is her first appearance, and she's not exactly the way I remember her being all the time. She's a little, little airheaded in this episode, it seems like, kind of focused on herself. I remember her being more of a uh, almost... She's a foil to Dana, obviously, but more career-oriented and not so kind of silly as she has been in this episode. Yeah, I feel like she was really locked in to just talking about her career, but there's a lot more development with her, as I remember, with this first season going along. I just feel like there's a lot more to her than maybe we see, but I do like the introduction to her. Like, here's Sally. Dana doesn't like her. She's really flirty. She's really ambitious. Here's what you need to know to appreciate her in this context for these 20 minutes. And obviously, we'll be able to build as we go along. But I did feel like there was just the right introduction for you to not really want to like her 
right off the top. My stuff's out there. I talk to a lot of people. Just as long as none of them are talking back. CNBC, MSNBC. M-O-U-S-E. Well, like she's listening to anybody but herself. Even CNN. Okay. Oh, yeah. Listen, Sally, we're sort of in the middle of a, what do you call it, a national television show. No, but we do good work on the 2 a.m. Sally, we're back in 30 and you're in our shot. Sally, of course, played by Brenda Strong, who is probably best known from Desperate Housewives, although I think she only appears on screen at the very beginning of the very first episode and then kills herself. But she was the narrator and kind of the the whole catalyst for that show at the beginning, uh, alongside Felicity Huffman there. Of course, for me, most well-known as Sue Ellen Mischke from... Uh, Seinfeld, the heiress to the O'Henry candy bar fortune, who and, wears a bra, bra as a top. The, the bra, I was going to say the bra, the bra top, and and I mean the the resume for Brenda Strong is extensive. Oh, it's I deep. mean, it, it, you go back to Saint Elsewhere in 1985 on the television side, and Weekend Warriors and Spaceballs in the mid 80s on <laughs> the silver screen. It is a very long and accomplished acting career on TV and film for Brenda Strong. So I always also very, very think good. of her from uh she's in Starship Troopers as like a like an admiral who gets basically cut in half by a door. Meets a pretty pretty gory <laughs> ending in that movie, but she's pretty great in there as well, I think. But she she is. She has seen some demises apparently. But again, by sheer volume alone of the amount of roles that she's had, I would imagine there are some deaths in those <laughs> in those roles at some point. So we get her just droning on and on, not really paying attention to any responses from Dan and Casey about how she's going to make it out of the 2 a.m. It's a great starting place, but I'm bigger than this. I'm better than this. And we go back to the control room where we find that Dana just does not like Sally. Pretty funny back and forth between Natalie and Dana here as well as they're kind of taking each other's side between the Sally debacle and the fight between Jeremy and Natalie. I have a keen dislike for that woman. She's perfectly nice. She is not perfectly nice, and I'd appreciate a little backup here. Could we have a bond over this, please? Fine. I'll stop thinking Sally is nice if you'll stop thinking Jeremy is right. I never said he was right. Hey, I'm sitting right here. Stay quiet. Thank you. And, of course, the jealousy that Dana is showing a little bit as she says, and make sure Casey sees your cleavage as you walk away. <laughs> she's, got yep, some, exactly. she's got some beef both professionally and personally, it sounds like, with Sally. So the guys come back and close the show out. I think this might be the first time where we have Dan specifically say goodnight, Mom, at the end of the show as well. I heard it, and I love that little stretch because uh, I love Casey's line. If you hear any animals talking to you about buying tacos or beer, uh, listen to what they <laughs> what they tell you. And I, I didn't really know what that meant when I first saw this episode, I, you know, back, back when I first viewed this series. I go, what does that mean? And then I go, oh, it's commercials. Oh, yeah. It's a chihuahua, and it's, and, and it's frogs, and it's... It's penguins telling you to buy beer and tacos, and that made total sense to me at that point. We get the good night, Mom, from Dan, and then we get the monster trucks. <laughs> they <laughs> are. <laughs> very obvious. The monster trucks are always playing in the credits of uh, CSE Sports Night, so apparently more monster trucks are coming your way on this network. I like to think that in, this, in the universe of the show, there are a few people who are turning on their TV at midnight like, all right, monster truck time. It's time. We've been, waiting, we've been waiting all day and night for this, and it is, it's time to get down with the monster trucks. Thinking about the ads as well, this might have been, so this is 98, this might have been right in the middle of the Yokiro Taco Bell and the, and the Budweiser frogs. And yeah, exactly. Advertisers got real into animals for a little while there. There was a streak in the 90s of just animal spokespeople constantly. And I was thinking about those penguins, too. Like, I think there were the Bud Light penguins and, you know, the Doobie Doobie Doo penguins. Yep, yep. I feel like that's kind of uh, around that time. I, I can't really think of – I guess the Clydesdales could always 
fall into that category as well for Budweiser. But I really remember the Frogs and, and Yokero Taco Bell. I think that was the ad campaign that was going on at that time. What a time to be alive, the late, eight, <laughs> the late 90s with, with advertising. So the show ends, and the guys decide, you know what? We got time to kill. We got a deck of cards. Let's play some poker. And as they're walking kind of out of the studio back towards their office, there's a great exchange about money won and money earned between Dan and Casey. You know what they say? About what? About money won. What do they say? I don't know. I'm asking. They say it's twice as sweet as money earned. How come you said what do they say? No, it was an alley-oop pass. I was dishing you the ball. You were. And I completely missed it. Well, I was there for the putback. I wouldn't be able to do anything with it anyway. That's right. Because I didn't know the expression. Not only that, but it was like half an hour ago, and we're still talking about it. Uh-oh. You're not in the zone anymore, are you? Not in the zone. Lost the zone. I'm down here with the rest of you. <laughs> Let's play cards. Come on. And he, and he realizes he's lost the zone. He is after, out of the he, zone. He's out of the zone. The zone is gone. The, the, the palpable feeling that he had of being in the zone is no longer existing. This scene here has some of that camera work I was talking about liking as well, where as they're kind of walking together, Dan stops. The camera kind of goes from being next to Casey to behind him to get his reaction. There's a lot of those little subtle camera moves here that uh, Miss Gordon pulls that I think are really, really nice. And it's different. You can really get the different feeling between her style and Tommy Shalami's style in this episode, just the way things like that, little tiny camera moves, which I think are pretty great. And also, did you notice the laugh track severely diminished? There were a lot of laugh lines where I thought, uh, that was going to be it, and they weren't there. There was some laugh track, but not as heavy as, as it could have been, I think, for this episode. I'm right with you. I was looking for them, and I was kind of expecting them and anticipating them. And the times that they did pop up in the po- during the poker game made sense to me. But I was glad that in other spots where I'd gotten used to hearing the laugh track, it wasn't there. And it's, I think now we're starting to get to that point where it's about to fade away almost completely. So this is what we were kind of waiting around for, you know, like the halfway point maybe of the season. You know, it's a 22-episode season. This is episode 10. So we're right around the halfway point, and it's now starting to almost diminish completely. And I, I think that's a battle that was well fought and well-earned for whomever was fighting for oh, yeah. not having a laugh track. I think it was a good battle fought. It's funny that I, I just yesterday was reading through like behind-the-scenes things from movies, and Blade Runner, the classic sci-fi movie, there was a voiceover, a narration that the studio kind of forced in, and then there were notes from the studio saying, this voiceover is horrible. Like, well, you wanted it there. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're, you, these, these kind of suits make these decisions that then ultimately are a detriment, but thankfully it's starting to fade away. We go to a new scene where Dana walks into Isaac's office, already making some cracks about osteoporosis. I downloaded some stuff, you know, you got this and that. So she's really starting to stick it to him a little. Dan comes in, and some classic Dan confusion as he asks if they would like to participate in the sport of kings. We're going to race horses? We're going to play poker. That's not the sport of kings. What's the sport of kings? Racing horses. What's poker the sport of? It's the sport of people who play poker. Thank you. Isaac's shrinking. Oh, yeah, Dana, I forgot to ask you, please... Spread that around. What do you say? We got nothing to do for two hours. $10 minimum, three raise limit. Whatever. Shoe money tonight. And there's the very first kind of name drop of the episode. Shoe money tonight, which Dana's going to say, oh, so many times throughout this entire episode. With with a very specific cadence to it as well. Shoe money tonight. I've got a note here that says, Dana's on fire and throwing bows and looking pretty good. Like, Dana's 
really feeling good in this episode. And she she kind of gives Dan a jab as she's as she's uh, making jokes at Isaac's expense. She's just really in a in a nice mood, which is gonna not last the whole episode, but she's she's feeling all right, which is nice to see her just be happy and and just just overall good vibe going on in the office. Yeah, it's an energetic uh, episode for Dana Whitaker. I, I actually think back to the opening scene when she was being delegated. You know, she had to delegate and. She tells Natalie, you know, Natalie asks, who's going to tell them, speaking about Dan and Casey having to stay and do the 2 a.m. show. And Dana goes, funny you should mention that. And she gives like this little funny kind of smirk. And it's uh, just like a high energy feel for Dana throughout this whole episode. She's there's there's no drama with her in this. It's just I'm going to jab and rib at my coworkers. And have a good time, and I really enjoyed it. Another great moment from her is going to be in a little while when she's yelling at, at Casey about Sally, and she kind of imitates her body, being like, Sally, you know, Sally. And Sally, she does, yeah. Like, these yeah, little exactly. contortions and like uh, body movements that are pretty great, too. So Dana just, just crushing it in this episode. We get a new scene, and we get some more background here about the Jeremy-Natalie fight. I, I told you a minute ago, and I wish we could just sort of, we will sit back on this episode, and let's just play the whole audio, because it is so funny. And this is maybe going to be a long clip, but I really feel like this shows why this is such a good episode. As they have their walk and talk, they're arguing, they end up in the control room, and there's more funniness going on there. So so sit sit down for a minute and just listen to this this minute and a half of, of excellent clip here. It was one night. It was ten. It's the only night we've had the same night off together for like two weeks. We're together every night anyways. So. At midnight. We go back to my place or we go back to your place. We have a lot of sex. We watch the 2 a.m. wrap up. We go to sleep. We come to work. What kind of a relationship is that? It's working out pretty well for me. It was a joke. I made a joke. I like to make you laugh. Why? Because I like you very much. Jeremy? Yeah? Wasn't the greatest joke I've ever heard. I never said I was opening for Jack Benny. You meant Henny Youngman. I meant Jack Benny. Jack Benny plays the clarinet. Jack Benny plays the violin. For that matter, so does Henny Youngman. But you're thinking of Benny Goodman. Do you really always have to be right? No. Then why are you still talking? Because I am right. Could have guessed. Hey, if we're going to fight, can it not be about Henny Youngman? We're not fighting about Henny Youngman. We're fighting because instead of going to the movies with me, you decided to play tennis with Judy Rudy Tootie. You guys getting all this? You know someone named Judy Rudy Tootie? Judy Reston Taylor. The actress? And we went to school together. I hear she's great in that new thing. Thank you, Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> Natalie! Hey, we're playing poker in the conference room. You guys in? Uh, Natalie and I can't play. It's important we spend these precious moments together. Oh, there'll be no precious moments tonight, darling. You know what I mean? I think I do. No precious moments of any kind. I understand. If, however, your arrogance extends to thinking you're a better poker player than I am, you are welcome to join me at the card table so that I can wipe that smug smile off your face and teach you a lesson you so richly deserve. Natalie, do you even know how to play poker? The guys at Sigma Kappa Pi let me play in their poker game anytime I wanted. Now, why do you suppose that was? Because you're a knockout and your parents are loaded? Because I got game, baby. Have you fallen on your head? Or are you just afraid I might humiliate you and you won't be able to go to Sundance with Judy the hoe? I tell you, Casey, it appears some time has freed up in my schedule and I just might be able to play cards with you after all. Rack them up, Casey. Oh. That's pool, you mental patient. It's going to be a fun night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is the definitive Aaron Sorkin of this series. Like, that exchange... Uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you, you pushed to have us play that whole clip because I'm, I'm absolutely with you on this. I think that is definitive of what to expect from Aaron Sorkin in this series at his best. There are so many little lines. There's classic 
walk and talk going on. There's that kind of personal discussion in front of other people that then you draw the other people in where Jeremy says, you guys getting all this? So it's it's really something we will see him build off of and use over and over again in other series. But this is it. This is that moment where everything clicks. There's a lot of funny lines. There's so many both serious notes where you can see that Natalie is really upset. Like she is upset by this, but she's still kind of teasing him and they're still arguing enough. I love the Judy Rudy Tootie. <laughs> you oh, that's, know that's, someone that's named Judy Rudy Tootie. <laughs> and, and, and there's so much rapid fire from multiple characters in this, but it does not, I don't know what it is. It doesn't feel super forced. Some episodes that have that rapid fire almost feel like they're forced. Like they have a tendency to feel like I'm going to write this character speaking really fast. And then this person's going to respond with the same line and repeat what the first character said. And it's going to go back and forth. It does not feel forced for, for whatever reason in this back and forth no, at all that's an excellent point where sometimes and we have mentioned it in, in previous episodes where there's a wordiness to it that almost sounds unnatural or the way the characters ping pong almost is like yeah it's his style i get it but that's not how people would actually talk in this one even though it's quick even though there's the back and forth it's very natural and it's, yeah. it feels like a real argument between two smart people who would be able to to think on their feet like that that's my favorite my favorite moment of the episode and probably my favorite moment of the series is just that that argument right there. Yeah. So we got the information. We know now why Natalie is so upset. Jeremy decided to play tennis instead of go out with her. And one of the people he played tennis with was apparently a very beautiful actress named Judy Reston Taylor that he had gone to school with. So that's going to be obviously you chose her over me is Natalie's feeling there. And she decides, I'm going to get back at you. We're going to play some poker. The boys at Sigma Kappa Pi taught me how to play well. And I love her line also where she says, you don't want me to play because of that? Or are you afraid I'll humiliate you and you won't be able to go to Sundance with Judy the Ho? <laughs> and, and I love the, the technical crew's reaction. They're, they're just kind of, oh, they just gave one of those. Uh, like, she just laid the SmackDown line right there. And, call, and Judy the Ho, I feel like in 1998, <laughs> 1999, was like a really offensive, like way more offensive maybe then than it is now. I almost feel like it's a caricature word now, where if I, you call somebody a hoe, they're like, ha, that's yeah. funny. Now, like, but back then, that was like a serious, serious fighting phrase, fighting word right there. I love how much hatred Natalie has for Judy Rudy Tootie. <laughs> just because of Jeremy playing tennis with her, and so much anger built up. It's so, so funny. And she's just like fuming about this and wants to now battle Jeremy on the on the poker table instead. I and love the end of and the and the end of it is, is great too, where rack she just up. Where, where she says rack him up, and he just goes, "That's pool, you mental patient." It's so it's just so well delivered. I gosh, this is such a great scene. Oh, that ends and goes into a commercial break, and we come back into the conference room, basically set up as a full on casino. My big note, all capital letters. Where did they get that giant piece of green felt? <laughs> because <laughs> the whole conference table is covered in green felt like a poker table. Where on, did they just have that in storage? What was going on there? I wrote one hell of a card table. They got in the office. Like True. that is like a Vegas sized card table. That's a James Bond movie card table that we're looking at. Looking around the room here as well, because now that I've seen this so many times, I can pay attention. Here comes some of my, my funny nitpicky, obs hopefully funny nitpicky observations. <laughs> We've got a Mountain Dew can covered in stickers. Another one of right. those sticker covers going on. And then I started trying to pay attention to who's drinking what beer. And there's a few I can't identify. I certainly see a Red Stripe, which happens to be one of my favorite beers. So that's that okay. popped out to me. Uh, there's an Amstel Light. And Dana's beer bottle just says beer on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. I think actually I remember a season one episode of The West Wing where they it was a very early episode and they are they're all eating Chinese food in the office and he goes, Oh, pass me one of those and somebody passes Leo McGarry a Pepsi uh, what's clearly a Pepsi with the red and blue logo on it, but instead of saying Pepsi, it literally just says cola on it. And I'm going, where are they getting these generic brand colas? <laughs> Printed out on aluminum cans because I've never seen those in my entire life. I'm I'm wondering if when in movies and TV they go to a bar and somebody says, "Give me a beer," and they just hand over a beer. That must be what they're getting. <laughs> it's just yeah, exactly. Beer. Like, oh, let me get beer brand beer. Can I get cola brand cola as well? Oh, it's, I just thought that was funny. That there's hey, there's a couple of beers I recognize. That's a real thing. Oh, and then there's beer. Which there's is, generic beer. Yes, that's pretty classy. I think of Dana to be chucking if I, down. If if you started a brewery, I think you would just call it beer just for the hell of it. We have uh, Dan complaining about being out of the zone. A couple of those classic lines. Casey responds by saying, there was a time when he was in the zone. And that's all he says. And they get going. We get a couple more really good Dana lines. She keeps shouting shoe money tonight, ripping on Isaac. She says, Isaac's a little cranky. It seems like when he was growing up, he didn't get enough calcium or vitamin D. (laughs) And she's got the cigar in her mouth while she says it. I just wrote that line is so good. I I just, the way she delivers it. I think, I feel like when you're an actor and... Uh, you and I have both done a very light amount of acting. I, I've done, I did it a little bit in college uh, in some theater productions and things like that. But I always just felt like when you really liked what was written for you that day or when you get to play a character that you really enjoy, you can tell when the actor playing that character that day or whatever new character they're playing, you can tell when they really enjoy it. And it feels like Felicity Huffman probably walked in read this and just said this is awesome i just feel like this this is like maybe her her favorite episode just because she got to say so many funny lines throughout you can just tell she's having a good time it's very very funny and as uh the game is being played we find out as natalie bets ten dollars that jeremy's just crushing her uh he's got the great lines you owe me like seven hundred thousand dollars well he's just just creaming her apparently and just running the table there's lots of good back and forth going on where she's just not backing down well, she's he's got the uh, the poker chips uh, shifting through his fingers. He like I can't do that trick where you just kind of slide a poker chip or a penny or whatever in between your fingers back and forth. No way. And and I mean that's really cool looking. First off, and he's just delivering it. Joshua Molina does a really nice job just delivering these lines while just looking pretty cool. This is about as cool as Jeremy Goodwin has been in an episode uh, by far. And when you look back, you realize Josh Molina. I didn't know this was a co-creator and producer for a celebrity poker showdown. Mm -hmm. And he's an avid poker player. And I guess the story goes that he and Aaron Sorkin, while they were working together on Broadway, would have several poker games throughout a month. And he would actually use some of the poker winnings to pay his rent early in his acting career. And on sports night, they had a cast and crew game that lasted the full duration of the series run and oftentimes would delay the start of their shoots. (laughs) As I was looking into research this, I knew that he was a big poker player, and I remember having heard that Josh Molina and Aaron Sorkin were poker buddies, but knowing that they had this long game going on for two years, that's amazing to me. Can you imagine having to tell Aaron Sorkin, hey, I want to read this scene, but I've got, you know, I just put in 20 bucks and I'm the big blind or something <laughs> like that, you know, like I, which also tells you how much I don't know about poker because the only thing I think I ever know about poker is, is Texas Hold'em because yeah. when I got to college, everybody started playing Texas Hold'em. In 2005 is when I went to school 
and everybody was always playing Texas Hold'em. They always did those free rolls online. I was about to mention those free rolls. The free that, was, rolls that was the huge. peak of poker popularity, I think, between like 2005, 2008, probably. Right when we were in college was exactly. everybody playing Texas Hold'em. And definitely the free rolls. I remember vividly me and Tommy, who was my roommate in college, we would wait up. There was a 130 free roll we would play. Yep. Every single night, and you would just Absolutely. wait until uh, 1.30. You would either play then till like, 4 a.m. and win 50 cents, or you would end up out at, like, 1.31 and be like, well, I'm going to bed. But- yeah, now it's, time, now it's time to go to bed. And Brian and I, my roommate in my freshman year, were, were the exact same way. And pretty much every guy in our wing would do free rolls. And before that, we would always go down to the lounge and have pretty much a, almost an almost a nightly poker game that you could jump into or if you felt like playing, you could always like knock on somebody's door and say, hey, do you got your chips? I've got my cards. You want to go play poker? And you could almost always get into a game for those like two, three years. It was a good, uh, a good run that Texas Hold'em had. Although sports TV became dominated with like the World Series of Poker and all kinds of different TV shows. And, and, I- and surprisingly enough, they st- like, those things still rate because there is still a very niche audience that is passionate about it. And I mean, I, the, uh, one of the guys I used to work with in broadcasting in college, he is a professional poker player, and he's been to the World Series of Poker every year, and he's won a couple of bracelets. So, like th- that, there, there's a there's a niche audience about this. And as a matter of fact, Aaron Sorkin apparently is working on his directorial debut, and it's called Molly's Game. So, uh, you know, I've seen some stories throughout maybe the last six months where Aaron Sorkin is writing a poker movie, and some people are claiming that it's going to be the best poker movie since Rounders. So I just, I love how through, what, 25 years, poker has such a big part in what these guys have done in their careers, and in this episode in particular, which I would imagine is a lot of these guys' favorite episodes. It's uh, it's funny you just mentioned Rounders, because I was, I was going to say, that's... That was my college experience for a couple of years, I think, was watching Rounders like once a week and then trying, uh, yeah. to, <laughs> trying to win oh, how many times on a pre how, how many times did somebody yell at you, pay that man his money? Oh, in a can, you, can you get through a poker game without somebody quoting I don't think KGB is the question? And the I answer really is no. Absolutely not. <laughs> so they're playing. They're having a great time. And here's one of those great uh, kind of cinematic shots I was thinking of as we get kind of the door between the backs of Dan and Casey and in comes Sally. How are my guys? And they sort of look at each other. Us? <laughs> Which is a great, great little moment there. Uh, she comes in and continues talking and blabbing and going on and on. And Dana is not having it. She's kind of raining on Dana's parade, Sally. So she pulls her out into the hallway to discuss the rundown and how she doesn't think it's going to work very well because this isn't how Casey likes to do his show. On segments 10, 12, and 13... No, I'm just saying, the 2 a.m. is my show. And you do a good job. Yeah, I'm not staying there forever, Dana. I have got people talking to me. MSNBC... Sally? Yeah? Don't really care that much about your life. Well, look who's the belle of the ball. Right. On segments 10, 12, and 13... What about them? Casey's not going to want to do it this way. He likes to break up the highlights with features or remotes. Casey approves your rundowns? No, but... <laughs> That's me. We've been working together a really long time. It's like a marriage. He trusts me with you, and I hope you don't take this personally. With you, he's going to want to approve the rundown. He already approved it. Nah, he approved it. He said it was fine. (laughs) He said it was fine. Well, he didn't really look at it, but he said, hey, you're the producer, whatever you think is best. Huh, he Hmm. said that. Huh, interesting. (laughs) There are a couple of things about this that do hit home with me because... You do trust your producer 
like inherently, like you have to trust, you have to be able to trust the person that's running the show. And when you're doing live television, you have to know that whatever the producer says or whatever direction the producer wants to go in is the right way to go. Now, it's a little bit different between studio and games. Studio, you pretty much have your entire rundown. Your show's planned for the most part, unless you're getting additional scores coming in or breaking news happens or things like that. Most of your show is pretty much formatted. You know what you're going to talk about. You know what graphics coming up. You know what videos coming up. You know what games you're going to talk about. On the live game side, which is my world, it's a little bit different and there's a little bit more give and take. I can suggest a story that we've talked about that maybe we want to dive into a little bit further or I let my producer know, hey, I might want to talk about the guy who's injured right now that's not playing in this game. So maybe if you guys could have a shot ready after this snap and if nothing happens on this play, you guys will show me that and I'll talk about it and I'll ask my analyst about it. So it's a little bit more chaotic on the game side. It's organized chaos, but you have to be able to trust that if your producer tells you, uh, hey, this is what happened on that last play that you didn't see, just say it. And you haven't seen it. You might be totally blind on some of the things that you're actually saying. I think people would be surprised how often play-by-play guys say things that they haven't seen yet, but it's the producer or somebody they trust in the production truck telling them, hey, this is what happened on that play. And you have to know that you can trust that what they tell you is right. You're not going to get beaten up for it. You're not going to be told it's wrong because the person that told it to you is somebody you trust. And you develop those relationships like Dana and Casey have. You know, she, she says, well, Casey and I have been working for a long time. He trusts me. If I put this rundown together, he's going to know that it's the right thing to do. And I have to feel the same way with my producers in the same way that they have to feel that way with me. They know that they can trust me if I say I'd like to go in this direction. So that relationship is very, very important. I really like that this shows that Dana really cares about how Casey is portrayed. And I know there's that little hint of kind of the uh, Sally mentions the I could I could go for Casey if just for the sex and the contacts. But there's a little bit of that personal kind of jealousy but i think this is more professional that dana really wants him to look good and be comfortable and she has that working relationship that you just described there and she knows him inside and out and how how he works and it really i think it really does speak to everything you just said there that she seems to be mostly professionally concerned about casey here she's not so much jealous of the the fact that sally wants to have a relationship with him just for the sex and the context, but just making sure that her guy looks good, that her anchor looks good and does the best show he can do. So, and, and I do, and I do think that she wants to make sure that she's portrayed in Casey's mind as somebody who's very, very good at her job, and that that'll manifest itself and play out a little bit when Dana and Casey go at it. So that scene comes to a close, and I, I made a little note: more good Felicity Huffman acting here, where she kind of gives an up and down to Sally, who is. Brenna Strong is like two and a half feet taller than Felicity <laughs> So the image of the two of them standing next to each other is funny on its own, but the way she kind of plays off like, oh boy. And Sally's just exuding confidence here and is very tall and very just, she's a strong looking person. It's very funny to see Dana kind of like, oh boy, <laughs> giving yeah, her well, an up and down. Well, Bre- Brenda Strong is listed at six feet tall. Like so, and, and she, I think she's wearing heels too. So she's basically like six foot two. <laughs> Maybe sit maybe taller than that in in the shoes she's wearing, and kind of looking down at Felicity Huffman, who is five foot five. So Felicity Huffman looking up at Brenda Strong. That and in all honesty, that's kind of how I feel a lot. In all honesty, <laughs> like I'm I'm about five seven. 
on a good day, I'll probably five, seven and a half with like dress shoes on. And more often than not, the people around me are much, much taller. And I just, I, I think I've developed a lot of confidence in myself just because I'm good at my job or I enjoy what I do. So I just feel good. So I don't, I don't think I walk around feeling self-conscious very often anymore. But when I see people who are like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, they, they, it's hard for them to not walk around and look confident. Like, like they have to try to not look confident when you're just walking around that tall. Yes, I agree. I'm, I'm give or take 5'11", and I still feel dwarfed when somebody, anyone over six feet, I'm just like, man, that is a tall person. That is <laughs> you, a tall human being. Yeah. You have that like, oh, this guy towers over me even if they're only a couple inches taller. You feel that that little bit of inferiority, I think. We go back into the poker game and some more funny back and forth with Jeremy and Natalie. Jeremy is just crushing it, and Dana comes in, makes some jokes at at Isaac. I love when she says, "Isaac, did somebody step on Isaac?" And she calls <laughs> and, uh, him little buddy, which uh, is the little the little buddy is great too. Little buddy, like the way she <laughs> says it. And I, I've actually said that to people. I actually call people little buddy in that same fashion just to see what what they're going to react. She gives Casey a smack on the head and says that she needs to talk to him outside. So they step out, and she basically scalds him for approving Sally's rundown. He didn't really look at it. He just said, okay, it's fine. And she's starting to get that feeling of being taken for granted. They're going to have a little argument about this in a little while. But Casey just doesn't seem to know that he did anything wrong. He's like, I I can't figure out what I did wrong here. Because he maybe is taking her for granted a little, where he just assumes things are going to go smoothly. Uh, But he figures out sooner or later. And again, I made a little notes, more those tight shots, a lot of that close-up on the faces, back and forth going on, which gives it more of that, that cinematic feel, I think, which is, which is very nice. I seem to recall, and this was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, where there was an interview with Aaron Sorkin on the West Wing podcast, the West Wing Weekly that Josh Molina hosts, where I believe he said, this feels like a single-camera show, right? But yeah. they were doing like four-camera setups like that. So a lot of this, I think, was getting that coverage and moving around because it feels like single camera, but they were doing kind of traditional sitcom filming, although it's very non-traditional with the sets and where the cameras would be placed. For those who don't know, the, the single camera shot is basically you're doing the same scene over and over and over and over again with one camera. So you're repeating shot, you're repeating scenes with actors over and over. You're taking every take. You're, it's every take is from a different angle. You have to do coverage shots. And things like that. And on a multi-camera sitcom, you don't really have to do that at all. You're basically getting every angle that you need. And you're only going to use a, hand, a handful of angles anyway. This feels so much more cinematic because there's not, oh, I know that angle and I know this angle. And I think part of it, too, is the fact that we're in different places now, too. Like, yes. we're not just sitting in the studio where it's probably a couple camera angles that we're going to use. We're not just in the control room where there's probably only one or two or three camera angles that we need to use. Now we're in different places. We're in this large room with a huge poker table that needs different looks and different angles to make sure we get all the shots that we need. And it feels that much more cinematic. Like we're going into hallways that we didn't know existed at this point. And we're going into little back rooms with Dana and Casey that we didn't know existed. And we're going back into Dan's, Dan and Casey's office in a manner that we've never seen before by following the guys in there. So it's just a lot of new places and a lot of new ways to show that off, and I think this was really well-directed in that regard. Absolutely. The world of the studio and the office is growing, it seems, because you're right, we keep finding these new spots, which is unique for at this point, whereas you know you see your typical sitcom, it's like the living yeah. room, and the kitchen is off to the right, and there's the front door to the left. They're all pretty much the same. 
and that feels very stagnant and sitcom-y, whereas this, you're moving, you're everywhere, you're seeing these different places from a different point of view, and it's really, really cool. So again, credit to Denny Gordon for really taking over and doing a, a dynamite job, I think, with, uh, with her directing in this episode. Agreed. We go back to the poker game. Some good, funny Isaac lines where he's about to shove his suits up Dan's. Okay, which is great right there. <laughs> um, and we have Jeremy trying to do this. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Uh, you want to come to the bathroom with me, Dan? And Dan is a very dry, well, I know, Jeremy, oh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I don't, as a matter of fact. So he's dropping those hints. I really, you know, he wants to talk to him. They get out there. They head over to the office. And Dan tries to give some advice. You're very wise to come to me with this problem, he says. And fires out some pretty nonsensical advice, which Jeremy sees through pretty much right away. We see the Red Bull that Dan goes into his fridge to get, and he gives Jeremy a can of Red Bull. And I was like, when did Red Bull really come into chic or into you know into the lexicon of America uh, of American drinks? And I guess uh, 1997 was the first year that Red Bull was introduced to the United States through California. But the drink had been around since, like, 1976. Oh, no kidding. So it started in Thailand, and it was basically an energy drink with taurine that was popular among Thai truck drivers and laborers. So basically a drink to keep you awake, essentially, or give you some energy boost in 1976. And it took about 20 years before it finally showed up in the States. And you can tell that it's the first time that Jeremy's ever been exposed to a Red Bull can. Because he (laughs) after he takes a very meek sip of the red bull he like almost holds it in two hands and is observing it as if he just discovered the atom like it's (laughs) it's i was like that's funny to me because dan is like chugging it down like it's no big thing because i'm sure he's used to being up late at night and having to having to slug one down at one point but jeremy's like he's just been introduced to this new drug basically we get essentially the argument from dan that she doesn't understand that a man's past is more important to him than his future and i think you should hold out you're right, and withhold sex from her, which which Jeremy says, that sounds like it would be way worse for me than it would be for her. Exactly. Which is, just shows, as, and, as Jeremy says, you have no idea what you're talking about, do you? And Dan admits, no, I do not. Like, in this case, I have no idea. But he did feed him enough for Jeremy to kind of have a revelation. Yeah, and, and he wants to be equal. He doesn't want the upper hand necessarily. He wants some equality because he knows he can't win with Natalie for the most part. If for nothing else... The dress shirt thing. The dress uh, and, shirt, and, and and I don't know. I don't know about you, and I don't know if we're getting too far into our uh, our psyches and into the id, but that is a, a legitimate. I think for a lot of men, that is a legitimate, like sexy thing that a woman does, and and I've 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 succumbed to many a whim of a woman <laughs> because of the dress shirt thing. There's something about it. It's just it's just hardwired into our brains. I think for the most part. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's it's in there. And Jeremy kind of connects this back to a chess tournament that he once played where he lost a match after, you know, an hour, but he was really out of it since the very beginning. And he doesn't want that happen that to happen here. So he says, this is just like Bishop to Queensbrook seven. And Dan has no idea what he's talking about. And he explains. My chess team is playing Lakeland. I start my match. King's pawn three. King's pawn three. Bam, bam, bam. All of a sudden the guy moves Bishop to Queensbrook seven. I lost 32 moves later, but I was never even in it. Right. And that relates to Natalie wearing your shirt how? I have to stand firm. Thank you. Right. Here's an interesting little personal note. I have a song that I wrote in college called Bishop to Queensbrook 7, named after this this well, line right there. I, I not, not to be outdone, my friend, I wrote down another song title that you happen to have, yep. I believe, uh, and that we'll discuss in the final scene. Oh, but, it's coming. Uh, oh, yeah. but it's, it, it's coming up. 
I, I need you to do me a favor. I'm going to have to have you, if you still have any audio of those, I'm going to need you to send me a couple of clips so we can put this in the podcast. Oh, or man. we can upload it and maybe at least let the fans uh, enjoy it. We can post it on our website. We're digging deep into my personal archives, but <laughs> I, I've got them. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm proud of them, but I've got them. As soon as I heard both of those phrases, I go, huh, I seem to remember. <laughs> and I figured we, we, uh, we would have to dive into that at some point. I had a streak there in college where every song was essentially named after uh, a line of, or a, 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 something from a movie or a TV show that I yeah. thought related to whatever the subject of that song was. And I, I admit this, I, my friend, I, I was a fan of a couple of your songs and like I, I listened to them and I go, this is my buddy. He's doing a really nice job. Maybe my favorite one was named after a Top Gun line. Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. I do. That one's a song I'm actually pretty proud of. <laughs> that, was, that was a really good song. I, I kid you not, I was, I was very impressed by that one. Well, I appreciate that. I got I to gotta dig these things up now. I'm just going <laughs> to listen to my 19-year-old self for the next couple of days non, nonstop. We have a new scene here. We're in the control room, and Dana is chewing out Casey pretty good, explaining, as we kind of mentioned before, that he might be taking her for granted. You, you take for granted the fact that I know how you like the rundown, how you like this camera instead of that camera, and she gives these really specific lines here. But at first, Casey is purely convinced that this is jealousy of Sally. I didn't want to bring this up, but it seems to me, and I'm just speaking as a friend, it seems to me that your jealousy of Sally doesn't have quite as much to do with her professional acumen as you would lead us to believe. Whoa there, Huckleberry. Come on back to the stable. First of all, Sally doesn't have any professional acumen. And second of all, what the hell are you talking about? I'm just saying that it's hard not to notice that the woman's body was put together by a technician very close to God. A technician close to God? Not God himself, but certainly a high-level staff person, a senior VP. Well, her brain was put together by the assistant night guy at the 7-Eleven. Well, maybe so, but I think the source of your problem... Is her body? Oh, her legs do go all the way down to the floor, and she's going to be whispering in my ear for 30 minutes. We get some pretty ridiculous lines from Casey there about how her body was assembled or put together by a technician very close to God. A senior VP of some sort, and, and we do get... Uh, true Sorkinism here, her legs do go all the way down to the floor. And I mean, this has been said in so many different Aaron Sorkin shows and movies. And that, that's a really cool, art, almost artistic way to describe a woman. Like her legs go all the way down to the floor. And when you're six foot tall, like Brenda Strong is, it's easy to describe a character like that. Absolutely. But this is like, this is an artistic, really cool visual uh, in terms of describing uh, uh, the female form, I guess, for lack of a better term. At least once or twice in my life have I tried to use that line, not like to hit on a girl, but to like describe something. As like, describe oh. something, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I've, and I've, I've, I've been met too. with I've been met with more than a few blank stares when they're like, "What?" Because <laughs> it's, it's a thing. weird <laughs> phrase. <laughs> if I if I ever use that though, and somebody knows where it's from, I want to know that person. Yes. I want to get to know that 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 person right there. That is a good call. Uh, Dana breaks. Casey finally and says she's got you on the wrong cameras she's got you doing puns in your introductions she's got Dan covering soccer it's just going to be a mess of a show and Casey now decides wait a second we got to fix this I like that he says something about uh, you either need to have this fixed or tell everybody on the on call everybody in the western time zone and tell them that I am not like this in real time yeah exactly and and then again like I said you have to be able to trust your producer and and there's a rhythm to how you do things and how your producer does things and you know, again, just from my, my perspective on the game side of things, like I have a cadence when I call a football game. I have a cadence when I call a basketball or a baseball game. And the best producers know that cadence and go, all right, let's wait because he's going to say something. All right, now go to replay. 
uh, let's wait, let's not rush the replay, let him finish the call. All right, now we got a replay. Like there is there is a very specific dance that you're in and it changes depending on the announcer and the producer but when you find that rhythm it's really important and you want to make sure that you stay in that rhythm as often as possible because everything in tv is timing and rhythm everything in broadcasting in general i think is based on timing and rhythm good shows are here's a question i've got as well here so we know that dan and casey write their own scripts obviously uh you would think then that the the west coast anchors would write their own who wrote the script chock full of puns did sally write the script it sounds like Sally wrote parts of this script, and I would wonder if maybe that had something to do with the fact that Paul and Peter are stuck somewhere. True, and maybe yes. they maybe they couldn't write part of it, or or hey, I'm, I'll take care of the intros. And obviously, the things that you're doing on the West Coast update, a lot of them are going to be from what you already did at eleven o'clock right. Eastern time. It's going to be a lot of the the games that have already gone final, and then you're adding in everything that happens on the west coast with the late games you know I, I guess this part of the year would be you know any late night laker basketball or or king's hockey because you're out west in december so that's what i figured you'd be doing but i was a little surprised by that because typically you're writing your entire script from top to bottom but you know i my, my producer and we have people on our show that will write things out for you for tape pieces you know you're not going to be able to see everything we do things called billboards you know you, you know when you're watching a game and it's uh, Sunday Night Football is brought to you by Michelob or whatever. And they give you the, the shots or different scenes or games or whatever it may be. The, the, the announcers haven't necessarily prepped the visuals that you're seeing. They're just reading the billboard and then going, oh, yeah, the high school game that we got a chance to go to because we're in Wisconsin for a Green Bay Packer game. And, you know, Waukesha West beat whoever. <laughs> you, you're like, the announcer doesn't know that. He's being fed that. And it's written on a card by either the associate director or maybe the producer or somebody else has helped you out with that. So there are certain portions of shows that maybe a producer or somebody else will help you write, but the script itself, the the, the shot sheets and things like that, that's of the announcer's accord. I think something as just a, as a viewer of, of this stuff instead of being in, inside of it like you are, I think it's something that you don't really notice until it goes wrong. Like... It's so smooth most of the time that yeah. you don't notice it until there's a mistake. And I think last week uh, when TBS was airing some of that playoff baseball, there was there were egregious errors with like the announcers not really matching up with the graphics on screen. They would say somebody had like a like a 296 batting average, but it was really like 304 was on the screen. Or they would say that he was oh he's a third on the team with uh, runners in scoring position with his batting average, but the graphic said that he was first in the team. It's like it's little things where it's so smooth most of the time you don't really consider it until you see those mistakes. So. That's something interesting to see from the inside and outside perspective, I think. It's like a referee. You know, the, you don't want to want to have the re, have the referee be a big part of the game, and sometimes the only time you notice the referee is when something goes wrong. Yeah. So, uh, I feel like that's how everything behind the scenes wants to be. Everybody on the technical crew doesn't want to be noticed. They just want to get through a game clean and not be called out for doing something wrong. I remember in little league being very upset one one practice because my coach like didn't talk to me at all he like didn't address me or say anything at all and i was talking to my dad on the drive home and he's like well that's not necessarily a bad thing because he didn't have to correct you and it means he expected you to do well and wasn't surprised by the fact that you were doing well i was like you know what? Yeah. that's a fine way to look at it like very good you want to just get smoothly through without having any problems or like hey i'm surprised you did that <laughs> like you want to be okay most of the time 
So we head into our final scene here. It's an intense showdown. We've got just Isaac, Natalie, and Jeremy in this last hand. Lots of close-ups. This is a scene that I thought felt very, very cinematic because we're really building the tension. Lots of just someone's face and the reactions. And a big, big bet coming. Jeremy bets 50. Isaac kind of feels it out, folds, and then Natalie raises 50. And I think here is that, that speech you were talking about at the top of the show here where Jeremy really is trying to say, listen, Natalie, I'm throwing it down. Listen to what I've got to say. You've lost a lot of money to me tonight. You're basically going to be living the rest of your life on a charitable grant from the Jeremy Goodwin Foundation. Take the hundred bucks back and fold. Scared? I've got a straight. You've got three sevens. You don't have a straight. Look at me. I'm not lying to you. I have a straight. How do you know I don't have a big house? (laughs) A full house. Dan already folded the six you needed, and I have the other one. You don't have a house of any sort. You don't have a pup tent. You've got trip sevens, and I have a straight. I want you to trust me right now. I want you to say to yourself, yeah, I've dated a string of jerks in my life. They were stupid. They were mean to me, but maybe this one's different. Maybe I should take a chance and not adopt the break up with him before he breaks my heart strategy. I want you to remember that when I started liking you, I didn't stop liking tennis. And I want you to know that I don't think there's a woman in the world that you need to be threatened by, no matter how glamorous you think she is. But mostly, I want you to trust me. Just once, when I tell you that you have three sevens, and I have a straight. Another long clip, but so good, it's necessary to get it all in there. A couple of Sorkinisms right off the bat. He yep. says the charitable donation from the Jeremy Goodwin Foundation. That pops up a few times. Uh, the one that sticks in my mind is from The Social Network, Social which is Network, one yep. of my favorite movies. And the uh, Eduardo Saverin Foundation shows up in that one. Another, there's that song title of mine, I've Got a Straight, You've Got Three Sevens. That's the, uh, that's the other title. Steve wrote a song called I've Got a Straight, You've Got Three Sevens. It's uh, that one, I think, is quite whiny. I don't think I'm going to be pulling that one out. <laughs> That's a bummer, that song. I love Jeremy intense. He's up ups- now, he's upset because she didn't trust him, she didn't listen to him. And Natalie just immediately like melts, like, Oh my god, he was right. I understand everything he's saying now. And uh, I have a note here this is quite a personal conversation to have in the middle of the conference. Yeah. Room. <laughs> You're really, really laying it all out there in front of uh, in front of the folks, in front of the help. If you will, if oh. we're gonna fight, we not do it in front of the help. But uh, they, they, he goes right at her in this speech, and I, I mean, everybody's already kind of been a part of it. You know, even Dana at the beginning says, "I've heard all about it." And when they argue in the control room, all the technical crew is just hanging out in there. You guys getting this? And Casey's <laughs> in, in on it as well, and everybody knows it's happening. So it's kind of cool that it just culminates in this. And the speech is so good. I mean, it's almost a meta line. But even Dana goes, "Oh, that was cool." That was cool. After Jeremy puts down the straight, she literally says, that was cool. Like, we all had that same reaction. And I just think it's so funny that she had the exact same reaction that all of us did sitting watching it. They're all intensely watching this. You've even got Elliot being like, and then there were two. Like, it's it's such a, they are the audience along with us for this whole thing playing out before us. Credit to Natalie, too. I think she, we've been calling her adorable a lot, which she is, but she was very kind of strong in this, even if she's a little silly at points, too. I love how after that big speech, this pause, and she hits him with that, you're bluffing so hard it's coming out your ears. (laughs) So she's just not, she's not quitting. She's not giving up on this. And I love her little, how do you know I don't have a big house, (laughs) which is pretty great, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's really really fun uh, in in various spots, but it's a really serious argument. This is a legitimate 
serious argument, two people that have major concerns. Jeremy doesn't understand why it's upsetting Natalie. Uh, he doesn't understand that whether it's insecurity or you know, eventually he does. Obviously, in the speech, he recognizes why Natalie's so upset about it. But for most of this episode, he just doesn't get what is upsetting the girl that he is falling for. Like, why? Why does it matter? And finally, when he realizes it, he's able to deliver his argument in in a very equal way. You know, it's not just you're wrong, I'm right. It's I get why you're worried. Don't worry. I, I, I'm telling you I'm better than that. So I, I just really like the speech. I, like I said, it's this is like definitive Aaron Sorkin. This is so, so good. Absolutely. And a couple of great more lines I've got here as he's trying to really be stern with her and say, you know what? We need to take a little time here. This is I don't think we can just dive right back into being normal. And uh, Dan gives him a little encouragement. That's right. You stay strong there. And <laughs> He's my boy. You're his boy. Yeah, but it's OK. Yeah, but it's OK. Yeah, I love that line. Too. <laughs> Some good stuff there. Uh, and Natalie, though, she can she knows her man. She says, you know what? Maybe you're right. I don't have any clothes at your place anyway. I'd probably just have to put on one of your dress shirts. And I know how much you hate that. Just melts and, and, the guy. <laughs> and, and the cinematics of that, too, because you get Jeremy, you get Natalie, you get Dana and Dan kind of looking on. And I just love how he ends it. He slaps the table and goes, I was never even in it. Good night, everybody. And Dana and Dan both have like this kind of cute moment. Like Dana almost buries her kind of nose in Dan's head. And it's like she's got this smile on her face. It's just like a, it, it was like everybody's happy that this kind of resolved uh, and, and resolved itself the way everyone was hoping that it would resolve itself. So I just really like the ending of this episode, too. There is finally this resolution as well with the, the rundown. Although, is this this seems like Dana may be overstepping her bounds. She basically takes over the 2 a.m. show. So it's, yeah, it's, that's, yeah. that's going to build that rivalry between her and Sally as it goes. I don't think she cares, really, that she's taking over the 2 a.m. No. show. And she's, get, and she's enlisting the help of everybody else, too. Elliot, get rid of all the puns. Yeah, like, they're like, hey, guys, we're literally going to do this show. So whoever would normally be in the control room can head home, <laughs> basically. We're just yep. we're going to do this all ourselves. And then she starts dealing. She's just tossing cards down. I think there's a little Sorkinism in there where she's dealing to somebody, throws a ten of hearts and says, also known as the Dave of Love. And I'm yes. not positive, but I feel like that's a CJ line in it is. the West Wing. Absolutely. I wrote it down and said that both Casey and Dana deal cards the way Alice and Janney does in the West Wing. Because even when Casey was handing them out earlier, and I'm just paraphrasing here, it was the same cadence. And it was like, eight, possible flush, six, no help, queen, no help, ace is bet. Nine, no help, jack, no help. Eight, possible flush, king, possible flush, ace, no help, six, possible straight, Dave of love for the dealer, ace bets. Allison Janney and uh, CJ does the same thing, and then at the end of this episode, also known as the Dave of love, that was also an Allison Janney line as CJ in the West Wing too. So I think I think we had a, a, a good run of Sorkinisms late in this episode. All very, very good ones too. And yeah. not really overdone ones, I don't think. That's just kind of that subtle little callback. As the... Dealing is happening, we fade to black, we get the title card, and the episode wraps up. So strong for everybody here. Not a lot story-wise going on. Really, the only story is the fight between Jeremy and Natalie, and that bit of uh, rivalry between Dana and Sally, but everything just clicks, and it's such a good episode. I can't get over that. This is a tremendous episode. Like I said, this is the definitive episode, I think, of this series. I think it's the one you go to when you want to show somebody exactly what you're going to get with the back and forth that doesn't feel, like I said, forced. It feels natural. It feels like great writing. It feels like something you can enjoy and absorb without 
having too much go over your head at any point. I, this is just such such a great episode. I, we, I know we talked a long time about it, and uh, there, there's so much to just absorb here with this episode, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. It was so, so good. One of my favorites, hands down. Can't go wrong with that. Next week, uh, uh, another solid episode, although taking a sharp turn into Serious Town, The Six Southern Gentlemen of Tennessee. It is an episode that I think is actually fitting the landscape of what we're going through today. Uh, there are a lot of college athletes that are protesting things, and they're obviously stemming from protests of the national anthem and things like that. And we have a, almost a direct parallel to that in 1998 at this point with seven college football players in Tennessee who refused to play under the Confederate flag, and Isaac has to get involved. And I, I really enjoy this episode. Like I said, we're in such a good stretch of episodes right now that uh, that it's really getting good. And I thought that the best person that we could talk to about all this is somebody who's covering a lot of these college athletes in their protests, and that's Nicole Auerbach of USA Today, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite sports writers. She does a tremendous job, also does some work for the Big Ten Network as well. And uh, I, I thought she was as good of a guest as we could have for this episode in particular. And she is also a huge Aaron Sorkin and Sports Night fan. Can't wait to talk to her. Can't wait to talk about the episode. That'll be next week on Those Stories Plus. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc. at Those Stories Pod. You can follow Adam at Adam Amin and myself at SJCIM. You can also subscribe to our podcast and download it on iTunes and Stitcher. And, of course, you can also listen to it on our website or leave a comment there at thosestoriespod.weebly.com. And we should mention, because we always forget, you can stream Sports Night on the ABC website for free. That's something that I think we like really were excited about for people following along and watching along, and then just neglected to mention again since we started the show. Yeah, why not? If you, why shouldn't we mention something like that? If you haven't been able to follow us, maybe you're just listening, you're trying to find these episodes, and maybe you can't really get any context for what we're talking about, it is available to you for free, and... These are such quick and enjoyable episodes. You could burn through an episode very, very quickly and just be able to enjoy it and absorb it. And that's what makes part of this so much fun is that we're able to break down a very short episode and talk about it for like an hour because that's what we do here. And uh, hopefully you're enjoying the podcast so far. So for Adam Amin, I'm Steve Cimino, and you've been listening to Those Stories Plus. Well, if you've stuck around this long, first off, congratulations. And second off, thank you so much, seriously, for listening to Those Stories Plus. We really do appreciate it. As we discussed, Steve, who is, along with being a teacher, a musician, when he was younger, he would title many of the songs that he wrote after lines in TV shows and movies. And, of course, being a Sports Night fan, he would take many lines from the show and turn them into his song titles. He did a bunch of them with lines from Sports Night, including this one, Bishop to Queen's Rook 7. We will make this available for download on our website, thosestoriespod.weebly.com, but we figured as a little gift, a bonus to you, we'd leave this at the end of this podcast. Maybe not so much we, maybe it was more so I. I felt the need to add this at the end of the podcast. So hope you enjoy and hope you keep listening to Those Stories Plus. I'm sorry.